It is important and refreshing to receive a journal like Sources. I rely on Sources for a deeply informed and well-curated collection of essays responding to current events and issues in contemporary Jewish life. Hi, I'm Claire Sufrin, editor of Sources, a journal of Jewish ideas. We get in-depth information from noted scholars, often in dialogue with one another, which is not to say always in agreement. In the newly released spring issue, scholars examine the theme of Jewish life tomorrow, reimagining key Jewish concepts for the present and future. Read, reflect, and subscribe to the award-winning journal at sourcesjournal.org. Hello, my name is Maytel Friedman. I'm the Vice President of Communications and Creative at the Shalom Hartman Institute. Identity Crisis is going to be returning next week, but we wanted to use the break to bring you some well-loved episodes from this past year, as well as a couple of audio versions of essays from Hartman's Sources, a journal of Jewish ideas. Today, we're re-releasing an episode in anticipation of Golda, a new film about Golda Meir starring Academy Award winner Helen Mirren that is coming to U.S. theaters later this week. Back in April, Yehuda Kurtzer had a chance to sit down with Penina Lahav, professor of law emerita at Boston University and recent author of The Only Woman in the Room, Golda Meir and Her Path to Power. In the episode, Yehuda and Penina discuss Golda's political career and the conflicts that shaped it, exploring the complexities of gender, rhetoric, compromise, and power. Here's the episode. Hi, everyone. Welcome to Identity Crisis, a show about news and ideas from the Shalom Hartman Institute. I'm Yehuda Kurtzer, and we're recording on Friday, March 24th, 2023. So there's so many stories at play right now during this turbulent moment in Israel. So many sub-threads and narratives, societal risks and opportunities all buried beneath the headlines, those headlines that describe the situation as merely mass protests against some particular new legislation about judicial reform. One of the biggest stories is the question of whether this is going to be a real and lasting wake-up call for the electorate about all the invisible ways that their rights have been protected until now by the court and the visible ways now that those rights can be eroded by this new emboldened legislature. The only reason some of my colleagues in Israel feel optimistic right now is because for the first time that many of us can remember, a lot of people are actually and finally talking about democracy and all that it might take in the form of institutions and other formal structures to protect the rights of the vulnerable. After all, just a reminder, a democracy is not the rule of the majority, as dictated even by fair elections as the current government seems to think. A democracy is measured by the ways that the majority rule respects the rights of the minorities over whom they govern. And all of that seems now at risk. Among those I think we can consider vulnerable to a future legislative overhaul, if it's not bound by judicial review, are women. I go back and forth, for instance, about whether the biggest group at risk right now is Palestinians, which includes women, or women, which includes Palestinians. Shani Reichman of the Israel Policy Forum has a good and short explainer out right now at Times of Israel in which she maps the issue of women's rights and how they're at risk right now because of the prospect of judicial reform and in the era of this government more generally. She connects the dots between the fact that the government has virtually no women in leadership roles and all the ways that a wide variety of social policies that would emerge from empowering ultra-Orthodox leadership and values to more oppressive legislation on religion and state would put women at risk. 
Some of the iconography that attests to this fear is already on display at the protests in the form of women dressed as the handmaids from The Handmaid's Tale walking across highways in Tel Aviv. And I have mixed feelings about the use of that symbol and about the apocalypticism that it suggests, but I don't think that the underlying concern is wrong. After all, the same thing happened here in America. First, you remake the court, and then you overturn Roe v. Wade. It's not alarmist to connect the dots between procedural changes in governance and the ideological legislative shopping spree that's inevitably going to follow. As I was reading about this, I was thinking about all the ways that conversations about women's rights and women's liberation constantly get leapfrogged in the hierarchy of social justice, the ways they always seem rendered less urgent to whatever is coming next. I think that happened in the past generation with the rise of the movement for LGBTQ equality. And I think it happened again more recently with the shift in focus in many sectors from gender equality as an independent good to subordinating gender equality under the larger umbrella of DEI, diversity, equity, and inclusion. And to be clear, I'm not making an argument against either LGBTQ equality or against DEI. I'm just noticing what happens when one important issue gets sidelined for another, when our societies seem to make choices that subsume one form of inequality under the heading of inequality more generally. I suppose it's not surprising that this happens, since this is the very grievance that the movement for gender equality has been naming since the outset, that gender inequality is simultaneously prevalent and invisible. This is, incidentally, one of the original arguments advanced by theorists of intersectionality well before their ideas got turned into punching bags by the right. Forms of oppression can be structurally linked, and it's a mistake to think that we can solve for one without addressing the other. And in that context, it seems to me, and again, this is a personal observation, that the conversation about the advancement and equality of women often seems to get subordinated. Gender in general is a never-endingly interesting lens for Israeli politics today and in the past. In a few weeks and on this show, I'll be interviewing Meirav Michaeli live in New York. Meirav Michaeli is the head of the Labor Party and has incurred an immense amount of personal blame for the failure of the leftist parties in the last election. Perhaps not surprisingly, as the only third woman to hold the role of the head of the Labor Party throughout Israel's history. I mentioned earlier the lack of women in the coalition, a government that follows on the heels of the most gender-balanced government in Israel's history, not only at the ministerial level, but among the CEOs of the ministries. Most of those women are now out of their jobs. And it cannot be incidental or coincidental that the societal referendum that rejected the Bennett-Lapid experimental government, as it was called the change government, that it also entails a rejection of this major social and political play towards gender equity and equality. It helps me understand now, and maybe I'm just late to the game on this, why feminism so often speaks of its history in waves, first wave, second wave, third wave, not merely because they reflect evolving efforts, but also because they remind us that there's always periods of retreating back to the low tide in between those waves. Of course, there's no way to talk about women gender, feminism, and Israeli politics without engaging the original matriarch of the whole story, Golda Meir. Penina Lahav, a professor of law emerita at Boston University and an acclaimed scholar of Israeli history and constitutional law, and I'm pleased to say a personal friend, has a new book out that does exactly this. The book is entitled The Only Woman in the Room, 
a title which provocatively combines the reality of Golda Meir's experience, oftentimes the only woman in the room, with a turnabout against the mockery that Golda often experienced as the butt of a joke that she was, quote, the only man in the cabinet. The book is a biography of Golda that intentionally examines her life's accomplishments through a gender lens, and I felt that the timing couldn't be better for a book like this, especially coming from a scholar who has for so long so carefully studied not only this kind of political history, but all the intersections between political change and the courts, which is all the stuff of our current news cycle. So, Panina, thanks for coming on the show today. And you know, I have my read about why this book matters now to the world, but maybe you could start by telling us why this book now mattered to you as the project that you obviously invested so many years in, in bringing about. Yeah, thank you very much, uh, Yehuda. I uh, think the good book now comes at an, at an opportune time because what you see in Israel right now, you have a, a cabinet of 31 ministers and of these, only six are women in the cabinet that uh, Netanyahu put together. And in these six women, none of them is in a senior position. So I think this sends a message to the electorate and to the world about what the cabinet right now and the good majority think of women. Women are a marginal element in society. And I would like to compare this, and that's why the one of the purposes of the book is to revive the Declaration of Independence of Israel that guarantees, doesn't guarantee, unfortunately, but that speaks of and promises gender equality. So Declaration of Independence not only promises democracy, a parliamentary government and elections and equal protection of the laws in elections to everyone, including Palestinians and women, but also speaks directly to gender equality. And I wanted to revive that as an important topic, and I wanted to revive it in the context of a very important woman leader. I want to tell Israelis, look, we do have women leaders <laughs> who did a great deal. And let us not forget them. We can turn them into role models, okay, or restore their impact as role models. That's what we need to do. Rather than say to ourselves, you know, we are helpless and uh, this is a government of men, you know, meaning controlled by men. It has not been true historically. That's what I wanted to say. So, yeah, there's something paradoxical, though, about Golda, because the ratio of women in the cabinet was no better when Golda was in the cabinet, including when she was prime minister, right? I mean, her cabinet was made Definitely. up of all men. So she's a weird example because she she represents in some ways a continuity between a sexist past and a sexist present. So why is Golda actually useful as a feminist story as opposed to what some might say she's a kind of a token story, right? She's there as a woman, but she doesn't really represent a totally different reality than the one we're experiencing today. Yes, I think it's a very good question. The answer to that is Golda represents agency. She represents the ability and the energy of trying to change things. Okay. It is true unfortunately, that Golda didn't do much in terms of women's uh, rights. And I, I would like you to give me an opportunity to say yeah. a few more things about it in terms of her labor legislation. I think that Golda was a victim of the climate and the society in which she functioned. And she was afraid of all of these men around her who uh, did not think that women's rights were important and uh, would put her down and not help her, whose help she needed, 
if she uh, tried to fight for women's rights, which is exactly what happened to Shulamit Aloni. She was afraid of being marginalized. And because she was afraid of being marginalized, she went over to the other side and surrounded herself with men. And these men eventually undermined her leadership. So liberalization, when you look at, uh, Golda was the first minister of labor in the Israeli cabinet from 1949. She specifically asked for the portfolio of the Ministry of uh, Labor. And when you look at women, she did lots of things in the labor legislation that uh, maybe we don't have time to review. But in terms of women, she passed laws that protected the right of women in the society. So I'll give you two examples. Mm -hmm. One is there was a law that prohibited women from, it was originated in England, which prohibited women from working at night. So that at night they come home and make dinner for their husbands rather than work. That was the idea originally. And uh, there was a case just before the uh, cabinet was looking at the legislation. There was a case in which a woman was sexually attacked at night as she was coming back from the bus to her home. The ministers in the cabinet suggested that why don't we just impose a curfew on women so that they don't go out at night and therefore be protected. And in the cabinet, Golda, the minister of labor, said, if you want to care for anybody, why don't you care for you, the men? Uh, yeah. It is the men who are attacking. Okay? So that's one example. But I think the more important example is the issue of maternity leave. In the United States, you still do not have maternity leave. In Israel, Golda fought for maternity leave from the beginning. And when the law was passed, the women's rights law was passed in 1954, the idea of maternity leave was ingrained into the law, incorporated into the law so that women have a right to maternity leave. Now men also have rights, but in the beginning it was only women. And I always like to experiment with this. I like to ask Israelis, you know, who look down at Golda as just an old woman who brought about the Yom Kippur War and that's it. I ask them, do you like maternity leave? Do you think it's an important thing? Young people, men and women. Yes, they will not do without maternity leave. Maternity leave is crucial. But they don't know that it's Golda who fought for it. Mm -hmm. So that's what I wanted to revive. I wanted to show people Golda did a great deal for us. Let's not forget it. She also, I think, credit her with advocating for the right to an abortion early on in Israel's history. She did not advocate for it openly, but she did support it so that when the uh, attorney general of Israel declared that um, doctors will not be prosecuted for having performed an abortion if there was no negligence, that was in 1951, I believe, Chaim Cohen, when he did that, she supported him wholeheartedly, mm -hmm. okay? And then many, many years later, when the issue of abortion became an issue in the United States, some of the right-wingers in Israel thought that it would be nice also to fight abortion in Israel. In Israel, it was not an issue. It still mm -hmm. is not an issue. Golda in the cabinet, in the protocols, was saying to the religious ministers who were against abortion, I'm, I'm surprised at that because under Jewish law, as you know better than I yeah. do, Abortion is not uh, prohibited, but they wanted to join the forces and to uh, prohibit it. She said, you guys are playing with my own body. Mm. That's what she said. Okay. Mm. Even though she, you know, she was already 70 something. She had this abortion when she was 20. Mm -hmm. So I guess the, it's not that I want to push back, but I want to, I want to flesh out even further the complexity of, of using her in this way. You know, you're arguing that 
she represents agency and that a yes. lot of why she doesn't appear to be kind of a feminist icon is partly because of the way she was manipulated by others or a fear of being undermined. But there are a couple of examples that you allude to in the book that make that thesis hard, one of which is early on in her life, in her career, when she and her husband, who they later divorced, but um, when she and her husband moved to a kibbutz and she joins the team of are those arguing that the women should be in charge of the kitchen. Yes. Um, so that's like a weird story for a person who's connected with agency. And the second, which appears later in the book, is her very disparaging comments that she gives about the second wave feminism, as she thinks she calls them crazy people who are burning their bras. So there's something, I don't know, disappointing about someone who is associated with agency, but seems to be fighting against the feminists of her own time, than to position her as something of a feminist icon. So maybe yes. you could talk that through a little bit. I think these are very, very good questions. So uh, first of all, about her behavior in the during her kibbutz years, it's not only that, but she also spoke against gender equality or, you know, put it down in the first speech she ever gave in Yiddish, because she didn't speak Hebrew yet, to the first convention of the Labour Party. So she did that. She did that as a political actor. That is, what she wanted to do was to carry favor with the uh, powers that be. None of them were feminist. She was always afraid of a backlash. Always. And that fear of a backlash brought her to say things and associate with people who were not always in favor of feminism. She was a political person. She was a political actor. She understood that the powers that be are not in favor of uh, equality. Mm -hmm. And so she was always walking between the uh, lines. The other issue that you raise, which I think is very important, and I'd like to talk about, I also talked about it in my book, is her disparaging comments about the feminist movement mm -hmm. in the 70s. Now, you hear the voice of the Minister of Foreign Affairs. You hear the voice of the Prime Minister, but also of the Minister of Foreign Affairs. The feminist movement in the United States at a certain point in time, in the second wave, associated with and sympathized with the Palestinian issue. You know, that was the time when the Palestinians and the Israelis were fighting for the support of public opinion. And what she saw is that the feminist movement is full of leftists, and the leftists were in favor of equality. They did not really look into the situation too deeply or in great detail, but rather they saw Israel is oppressing the Palestinians, and therefore we are not going to support the Israelis, rather we are going to support the Palestinians. Okay, that was the feminist movement position, more or less. And she was very hurt by that. And therefore, she decided she was going to go against the feminist movement. So this was a political move and political maneuver that had nothing to do with her views about feminism. Hmm. And I think here I would fault her. I think it was a huge mistake on her part, and she shouldn't have done that. Hmm. A woman who is prime minister does not put down feminism because she came on the shoulders of feminism. So it was, you know, too bad. Yeah, too bad. I mean, this is, I found to be kind of one of the revelations of the book is when you yes. talk about her interview with, with Oriana Falacci in the 70s. Yes. In the same interview, she disparages feminism, yes. where she also says, actually, being referred to as the only man in the cabinet has been something that bothered her, that it wasn't, exactly. a, wasn't an acceptable joke, but it actually got under her skin. So I guess you're arguing that's the real Golda. And the other Golda is 
politically calculated, but couldn't somebody politically make calculated. couldn't somebody make the reverse argument? Yeah. <laughs> how do you know? Like, you know, when you're trying to read this history, how what makes you feel the sense of confidence that Golda really represents a woman of ultimately feminism without the name, even though she's making all these political calculations in order to survive? Yeah, I think that you should like look at what she did. Look at her performance. You know, mm-hmm. here is a woman who rose to the top and was making decision at the top for herself and for the country and in the you know international scene. So what did she represent? She represented the best of feminism. A woman who takes her, her lot into her hands and is acting. And she was also a great role model. She was a mother. She was a grandmother. She could cook. She didn't disparage cooking. Okay. And she, at the same time, she made very, very important decisions about war and peace. So, you know, her life speaks to women's liberation and women's equality. She also gave us a role model, and she talked about it many times, of the tension between family and work and career. And she always insisted you can have both. Don't think that you have to give up, you know, one of these uh, very important uh, activities in a woman's life. I want to come back to that in a second, but it strikes me that like if we zoom out from Golda and talk about feminism more generally, it seems as though there's basically three boxes in feminism to reduce something very complicated to try to get at something simple. There's rhetoric of feminism. There's particular achievement and agency. And then there are particular political positions that advance women. And it kind of feels like Golda has basically one and a half She has the box of achievement, and she has some particular political positions that advance women, but she kind of refused to engage in the rhetoric of feminism. And on a different set of issues, you might argue that she took anti-feminist positions. So it's this kind of – I don't know. It's not surprising in some sense that there are certain schools of feminist thought that would say you actually need all three in order to be a serious feminist. And I guess you're trying to argue within this world of these different commitments, one can discern a more complex feminism out of Golda. Is that a fair reading? It's more or less, yeah. Okay, so first of all, I would like to correct by saying, that's from my perspective, which also is in my book, Golda is quoted many times, both in parliament, as she spoke to the Knesset, and in the cabinet, for saying that women are 50% of the population, far is zero, and therefore they are entitled to as much representation and um, a voice as men. She said it many, many times. She was quoting Ada Fishman Maimon, but it's important to understand that she was talking about it. For example, when she was talking about the uh, right of women to serve in the military, which was a big issue in the early 50s, may become a big issue again. She always insisted women are 50% of the population. So in terms of the rhetoric, she did that. Mm -hmm. In terms of uh, agency, I think she proved to us that she is putting her money where her mouth is. And in terms of the political positions, her view always is, I mean, the other rhetoric that she used always was, the best is the enemy of the good. Mm -hmm. So she would always say, this is a phrase that she borrowed from David Remes, her famous lover. So the best is the enemy of the good. Let's not climb the high tree of women's liberation and women's rights. Let's just do it on the ground. You know, one of the things that surprised me in the book, Nina, which I... I really admire that you went there because it was it's courageous to talk about it is because you mentioned one of her lovers. She had multiple 
and yes. there were men in high places. Yes. <laughs> um, you engage with the question of her domesticity, as you talked yes. about before. And she wrote this essay, which I'd never heard of before, called Borrowed Mothers. Exactly. Um, about the, it's a very the, important essay, yeah. The complexity and nuances of the, of the choices that women make. But you also talk about her appearance which is a way of acknowledging that she's actually an embodied human. And and you say she kind of gets mocked later in life for her dowdiness, but that it's also an unfair characterization. Did you have any ambivalence about talking about either the domesticity or Golda's embodiment? Because it's the thing that somebody could get mocked for, it's almost dangerous to introduce it into the context of a political biography. Yeah, I, I actually I thought about it a great deal. I also had arguments with it in, uh, you know, with students when I was presenting my book in Israel in uh, workshops. I thought it was very important. The reason I thought it was very important is because many writers wrote about it. Mm. I'm talking mostly about men, yeah. not only, but mostly about men. And they translated the negative uh, impressions that they had of Golda to her looks which is, again, is a misogynist idea and an ageist idea. You know, here's an older woman. She doesn't look too good. We can dump on her. And there was very little she could do mm -hmm. because she understood that she's not, you know, the attractive lady, uh, you know, that the Israelis might expect. I don't know. Even this is not so uh, strong. But I was ambivalent about it. But I decided to say to Israelis, look, don't go there. Don't go there. She what was good about her is that she was herself. The authenticity. She said, I myself, that's the way I dress, very simply. I don't look too good. I may know that even though she was quite beautiful and attractive when she was young. Okay. Mm -hmm. And I have these horrible shoes, which we can talk about if you want to ask me a question about that. <laughs> you know, that was also an accident and her loyalty to her job. Mm -hmm. And uh, so I am I, what I am. This is the strength in her. She did not try to change herself. She did not try to dye her hair. She did not try to, you know, go to the hairdresser every other day like Sarah Netanyahu does. She was herself. She felt comfortable as herself. I think that was a great moment, actually, a feminist moment. She said to women, you can be yourself and still be prime minister. I think that's very important. One of the other myths that I found interesting that you kind of unmasked is you know, she's famous for having disparaged the Black Panthers, a Panterima Shorim, yeah. a kind of version of Black liberation, but Mizrahi, Middle Eastern yeah. liberation movement. Exactly. Um, she's famous for having said they're not nice. And uh, yes. and what you, what you pull the full context to say, that's not what she said. What she really says is people who throw, I believe, Molotov cocktails is not a nice thing to do or they're not nice. They're not nice. Yeah, very family. So that's interesting. It's interesting that because the the very phrase "they're not nice" has an effect of signaling that it's its own kind of domestic line. It sounds unsophisticated. It sounds yeah. like a disparaging of people who are of Middle Eastern descent. It kind of sounds like that was basically the veil under which Golda was living at all times, right? So I, I saw this as part of the feminist story. Is that too much of an overread? The way that she yeah. was characterized in this way. I think it would because, um, and thank you for asking this question, the person who who said they are very nice was uh, Simchon, who was, I don't remember his first name, but he was a, a functionary at the uh, Labour Party. Mm -hmm. And he came to Golda at that time and said, you know, I met them, the Black Panthers, and actually they are very nice. And her immediate response was, they are not nice. And so people pulled this out and said, Golda said about the Black Panthers that they are not nice. 
But the context was somebody else said it. <laughs> it was somebody else who was Shaul Simchon, I think was his name. He was a Moroccan um, activist in Mapai. He met them and told Golda they are nice people. And her response was, people who throw Molotov cocktails are not nice. <laughs> so that's the way it happened. Golda's uh, daughter was married to a Yemenite Jew, you know, Israeli. Mm-hmm. And if you look at his picture, you can see the guy was quite dark, okay? And she embraced him as her son, and she promoted him, and she poured love over him and the, the grandchildren. There is no trace of uh, discrimination there or prejudice. And I can tell you, as a Sephardic Jew myself, as a Mizrahi Jew myself, I can detect prejudice. There is no trace of prejudice there. Hmm. I think that she was really, you know, from this perspective, she believed in egalitarianism. So I guess I have a Penina Lahav question next, which yes. is, I think what might have been your one of your earlier books, if not your first book, was about Agranat. Uh, Agranat was the justice of the Israeli Supreme Court in the 1970s, I believe the chief justice, correct? Yes. Um, and uh, the thing he's kind of most famous for is the Agranat Commission following the Yom Kippur War, which for all intents and purposes ends Golda Meir's career. It indicts her leadership, not totally directly, but it results in major indictments and resignations uh, of the IDF. And the Yom Kippur War is viewed as kind of the end of Golda Meir's political career. So what's going on? You know, Agranat, what's the full circle story that you're trying to do here of telling the story of Agranat, the Agranat Commission, and then going back to Golda, who's essentially the object of that commission? Yeah. Israelis tend to blame Golda for the Yom Kippur War. It's a theory that's ingrained in the Israeli psyche, unfortunately, okay? And I think what it does is it helps Israelis, I'm sorry to say, uh, not look at themselves and ask themselves, are we also responsible for the Yom Kippur war? Why is that? For our arrogance and for our hubris and for our expectation that if the Arabs dare attack us, based on the 67 war, if they dare attack us, we are going to smash them in 24 hours. That was what the chief of staff always said. And she accepted it as given. Hmm. So I think what's important here to understand is, first of all, Golda, as I said before, was worried about the way that the military will treat her as a woman who never served in the military and was expected not to know anything about military matters. So what she did is she surrounded herself with generals and she deferred to their judgment. And what I wanted to show is this deference to their judgment backfired during the Yom Kippur War because they assured her the intelligence in Israel, which were very admired, assured her that there is a very low likelihood of a war erupted. And if a war were to erupt, we are going to be able to smash them in no time. And both of these were wrong, but she relied on their judgment. And when she would raise issues and say, you know, I'm not really very happy about the Soviet delegations leaving. What is going on here? They would tell her, Golda, relax. You don't know anything about it. Let us uh, take care of this matter. So they were putting her down in a very indirect way, and that created a dynamic there in the cabinet that in matters of security, she should not intervene, like a secret pact between herself and the cabinet. That's what happened. And therefore, when the Agranat Commission is looking at the matter, the Agranat Commission concedes that she did everything she could, but it was quite limited to prevent the war. At the end, I'm saying, you know, I mean, there is, of course, this matter of diplomacy. Did she invest enough diplomatic effort 
That's another matter, okay? Mm-hmm. But the last few weeks before the war erupted, and when the war erupted, the Agranat Commission was quite clear that she had a sense that something is going on. She was worried, and the generals demanded that she defers to their uh, judgment. That's mm-hmm. the way it happened, and that's a feminist issue. That a woman is not supposed to know anything about uh, military matters, and therefore she should keep her mouth shut. That was the message that she got. Right. And it's self-fulfilling because then the result of the Yom Kippur War is, look, you can't be in charge of military decision-making. Women can't be in charge of military decision-making. And since then, as far as I know, I don't think there's ever been a woman who's the head of the Ministry of Defense, right, um, in, Israel, in Israel. I mean, it's not much better here in the United States. Yeah. Uh, the perception that military matters are run by um, and have to be led by men, but it becomes a self-fulfilling prophecy. What's particularly grotesque about it today is that more than half, I believe, of the current Israeli ministers did not serve in the IDF. Yeah. Uh, in some cases, in the case of Ben-Gvir, who's in charge of the police, he wasn't allowed into the IDF because of his radical views. He was yeah. considered a danger. And so you have people who, like Golda, may not have had the quote-unquote expertise or background in this line of work, but are effectively entitled to run the security apparatus of the state. So it feels like we haven't made a whole lot of progress in 50 years since Golda. <laughs> That's true, yeah. What the chief of police recently, I heard him in a speech, said about Ben-Gvir is not only was he not recruited into the military and knows nothing about the military, but also uh, he never ran even a kiosk, mm-hmm. the, the chief of police said, you know, a yeah. kiosk. He never ran anything. Yeah. And now what he does is he interferes with the operations of the police. Yeah, That's the scary thing. Whereas yeah. Golda, if you look at Golda and you look at her trajectory, she was involved in organizations and actions from the beginning, that is from as soon as she joined the uh, Histed route. So she was familiar with various complex organizations and bureaucratic uh, operations. That was the kind of people who were recruited into the Israeli cabinet at the time. Mm-hmm. So she didn't serve in the army, that's true. But she knew how things were run. Mm-hmm. She knew how the Mossad was run. And that's what we don't have today. It's the experience that uh, people in power had in those days and the experience that people in power don't have today. They have ideologies. Yeah. yeah, yeah. I mean, don't know how to run it. This is the generalized decline in both of our societies, America and Israel, around the notion of statesmanship. Yeah, um, the notion exactly. that there's there's some discipline that is sometimes about expertise and sometimes about disposition more than yes. it is about expertise that is connected to government. And you know all of the ways in which that can turn into forms of elitism and stratified society. So it's not like perfect on its own, but Absolutely. where we are seems to be in a totally different planet. Now, when we were communicating before the show, you also mentioned that one of the things that's striking to you about Golda and her leadership is the ways that she's the antithesis of the kind of corrupt politics uh, of today. Netanyahu is associated with pretty significant corruption trials that are ongoing. This is a live question in the past 24 hours because his own attorney general has now warned him. He had to sign an agreement before becoming prime minister that um, he's only prime minister on condition that he does not interfere with the judicial reform processes because it's a form of self-dealing. If he facilitates a court system that is going to review his own indictment, then the whole thing is a corrupt enterprise. And you you see Golda as kind of the antithesis to this. And I, I believe you have something to, to yes. share on it. Yeah. yeah. So yeah. So thank you very much for asking me about it. So I just want to say the, uh, this is correct. So if you look at the activities of the uh, legislature, Israeli legislature in the last few days, they are passing a law that permits 
the reception of gifts and the reception of donations, very lucrative donations, and thereby they are encouraging corruption and undue influence uh, on Israeli politics. Golda stayed away from corruption. She was not the only one, of course. But Golda represents another generation, a generation of very modest people who did not try to use their positions and an ex to promote themselves. And the reason I wanted you to uh, ask me a question about that is I found a letter in the Israeli archives from uh, October 56, that is the um, Sinai War, okay? Mm-hmm. She was Minister of uh, Foreign Affairs. She was in Israel, in the United States, fighting Eisenhower and John Foster Dulles, who were insisted that Israel withdraw from the Sinai. And here is a letter from Teddy Kolek, who was then CEO of the uh, Prime Minister's Office. And he says, for proletarian reasons... I'm, I'm uh, translating. For proletarian reasons, the Minister of uh, Foreign Affairs decided this time to come to the United States by herself, meaning she is not being accompanied by anybody. Maybe when she uh, travels again, she will be sufficiently experienced to understand that it's not exaggerated to take a secretary with her that has experience about work in the United States. And therefore, it, despite, he says to the Israeli consul, despite the limitations on manpower in the ministry, please find the appropriate person who could help Golda during her time in the United States. So what you see is, here is Golda. She does everything by herself. She doesn't take a butler. She doesn't take a secretary. She expects herself to do everything plus the regular work. And there are lots of other examples of Golda coming back from the United States and declaring all the stuff that she brings with her as gifts to her grandchildren, etc. Mm-hmm. Very, very modest, very humble. In contradistinction to, if you wish, Netanyahu leads with the 80,000 shekels that his wife just got from the parliament, 80,000 shekels for her wardrobe. Mm-hmm. You know, we were talking, you were mentioning the issue of appearance, okay? Golda's appearance was very humble. She did not dye her hair. She did not go to the hairdresser and compare it with Sarah Netanyahu, who has blonde hair. Everybody who knows a little bit about dyeing your hair knows how much money it should cost to have this beautiful blonde hair. Now, you should be thinking about it. Yeah, I mean, if you're a woman in politics, you're damned if you do and you're damned if you don't. You're going to well, be not criticized. Exactly, not exactly. You, you have to know the limits. It's a question of what you said before of, uh, you know, statesmanship or compromise or whatever. You have to do it in the right way. And not go overboard. And maybe Sarah Netanyahu goes overboard and Golda did not go overboard, but Golda really did not want to use the public funds for anything that would improve her situation. That was the point. I mentioned earlier that it strikes me that a lot, it seems kind of obvious, a lot of the reason why Mirav Mikhaili in particular is being blamed for the Labor Party loss in the last election, even though you can, it's literally like, It's just a downhill arrow for the Labor Party since 1992. And there are so many variables as to why the political system has changed is because she's a woman and because of the ways in which she is, unlike Golda, very explicitly a new wave feminist. Um, The way she talks, the way she dresses, the way she shows up, her radical ideas about family and, and so forth. So it's data point number one. Data point number two is it feels as though in general, Labor Party, but also left more generally, has spent the last couple of decades 
focus less on winning elections and more on getting out of jail free through the Supreme Court. So that's why, that's partly why post-Barak, the right has been focused on kind of closing that door. We know we can beat them at the polls and now we can beat them entirely by, you know, getting out of jail free. So why not, you've been generous with your time, but I would love if you could give some, what are the key takeaways that you would want Israeli politicians who might look towards Golda as a model of both reclaiming power but also getting out of this suggestion that just because somebody fails, they're a woman, what are the key takeaways that you would want people to kind of hear from the legacy of Golda Meir that could apply towards Israeli leadership today? Well, that's a, it's a very difficult question to answer. It's a, maybe the million dollars question. There is a danger, we've seen in the United States too, of a backlash to feminism. And the backlash to feminism can be very, very cruel and very difficult on the woman. So how you navigate it is not an easy answer. She chose compromise and giving in to the male dominance. Maybe this was not the right idea. But when you look at what Merav Michaeli did, that maybe that's not a good idea either. To Merav Michaeli's benefit, I would say that uh, Merav Michaeli managed to change the Israeli language. Mm-hmm. That is, that whereas the Israeli language until Merav Michaeli was male-oriented and male-dominated, you always said he and he is doing this and he is doing that, and Israel is a very gendered language, so it's much easier to see it in the Hebrew, uh, Merav Michaeli brought back the woman, okay? So when she says he, she also says he or she. Mm-hmm. And, I, you know, I don't know if you remember that uh, Bennett... When he became prime minister, he also used this trick. Yes. The trick shoot. comes from Merav. Mm-hmm. And now when I look at the newspapers, I see it all the time. You know, yeah. They absorbed it. They accepted it. So this is a great triumph, in my opinion, you know, that the language has changed as a result of Merav's contribution. And that eventually will make a difference. But these are very, very slow processes. But there was a fear of backlash. Yeah. And it's the fear of backlash that she was uh, experiencing, Golda. I also, you know, I may also say this. Golda was Minister of Foreign Affairs and knew about the Ministry of Foreign Affairs. Uh, she understood the art and the practice. And she uh, was trying to cater also to the United States leadership, the Senate and the Congress. And so sometimes she would say things that would please a particular senator or would please a particular congressperson. Um, and uh, we didn't always like it. So some of her actions and speeches should be understood in the American context rather than in the Israeli context. And I think that's also very important. She had her legs, her feet in two cultures and was, was moving back and forth. Well, I thought I would just conclude with this one quote that you have in the book from Golda, which I thought captured so much of what you've talked about today, which in which there's a certain conservatism to Golda, a certain yeah. conservatism, but it's rooted in self-confidence, which is kind of an interesting thing. Like, yeah. you know, don't just look at appearance, look at a competence. Don't, yeah. you know, I'm here. Don't pass me by. Forget about everything else and I can be in charge. And she has this line where she says, um, you quoted in the book, what I condemn in the young is their presumption in saying that everything you've done is wrong, so we'll really do it all from the beginning. Well, if they were to do it all over again better, I wouldn't even mind. But in many cases, they're no better than us old people and can be even worse. Yeah. I kind of I kind of love that. Yeah. She was in the midst of a generational transition yeah. in Israel, and she was responding to that. And she was hurt because she was a revolutionary in her time. Yeah. 
And suddenly, after 30 years, she finds herself in the uh, position of a dinosaur, person who's out of touch with the population, and the young generation not valuing and appreciating what she has done. She was very hurt by that. Well, thank you so much to all of you for listening to our show. And special thanks to my guest today, Professor Panina Lahav. The book is called The Only Woman in the Room. You can find it anywhere. Identity Crisis is produced by David C. Kalman, was edited by Gareth Hobbs, Silver Sound, NYC. Our production manager is M. Lewis Gordon. The show is produced with assistance from Miri Miller and Shalhevet Schwartz, with music provided by SoCalled. Maytal Friedman is our vice president for communications and creative. Transcripts of our show are now available on our website, typically about a week after every episode airs. To find them and to learn more about the Shalom Hartman Institute, you can visit us online at shalomhartman.org. We're always looking for ideas for what to cover in future episodes. If you have a topic you want to hear about, if you have comments on this one or a question you'd like us to answer on air, you can write to us at identitycrisis at shalomhartman.org. You can rate and review the show to help more people find it. You can subscribe everywhere podcasts are available. We'll see you next week, and thanks for listening.